Dr. Jonathan Avalos, addiction medicine physician for the Department of Behavioral Health. I'm also today's guest host for this episode of Resilient and Real. Today, I'll be speaking with Sean Bennett as he shares his inspiring journey of recovery. Thank you for joining us on the podcast, Sean. Hey, what's up, Dr. A? Greetings and salutations. Thanks so much for uh, being with us and uh, sharing your time with us and your story, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. This podcast highlights real stories of resiliency and recovery. And you came to mind when we were planning this episode. You were a person that struck me as a person with a, a powerful story and a pretty unique journey in recovery. And I think that that's something that our listeners should have a chance to hear. About. Just for context, if we could get a little bit of your story on what your, your individual addiction looks like. I'm an addict. Primarily, I'm addicted to alcohol. It's been a pretty rough road. It's been a pretty rough road. You know, I've basically been through all the different stages of alcoholism, including being in denial of it, accepting it and thinking that it was cool. Like, oh, yeah, I'll drink you under the table, buddy. Like, you know, <laughs> all the way to it spiraling way out of control, being a non-functioning alcoholic, not able to hold jobs, just basically just going through the absolute worst of it. And then ultimately leading to tonic clonic grand mal seizures and being hospitalized and being in treatment several, several times. Um, uh -huh. I kind of been through, you know, all the, all the different stages of it. And like most people, you know, it didn't start off bad. It started off as having fun, you know? Yeah. Tell me more about kind of the early part of your addiction, like kind of how it, it came to be in your life. Yeah. Very, very early on. And uh, as the years progressed towards, you know, high school, especially the end of high school, I was the party guy. I was always the one trying to initiate the parties, always trying to get alcohol because it was fun. I uh, never had any really bad consequences. Maybe got in a little bit of trouble here and there, not with the uh -huh. law necessarily, just, uh, you know, a little bit of behavioral issues when uh, okay. the liquors had drunk into me. Yeah. So early on, you know, it was you were kind of experiencing it, almost a sense of solving a problem. You're having a good time. When did it become sort of a problem in your eyes? You know, and I know it's easy to look back as a as an adult sort of after the fact and say, yeah, that was that was bad from day one. But even as a, a young guy experiencing this, when was the first sort of hint that maybe this wasn't working for you? So two separate ways to answer that. In retrospect, I realized that when it really became a problem, I was using alcohol as a sleep medication. Okay. At the time, I didn't realize it. Yeah. But when uh, kind of separately, a little bit later in my uh, addiction, it was basically when I just started drinking to cope with things. That's when I, even I knew. Drinking heavily by myself, not wanting to do it to go out to party, drinking to, to mask negative emotions is when it that's when even at the time I realized that, yeah, this is probably bad. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's an exceptionally good insight. And, you know, so so when it became, in a sense, your your medicine, sort of your fix all for you know difficulty sleeping, your fix all for negative emotions. And, and I'll tell you, you know, as, as a doctor here uh, specializing in addiction, it's classified as a drug, as a depressant. The issue that we're seeing here is we're treating depression and anxiety with a drug that's known to create depression in large amounts. And so where did things go from there? Yeah, it's kind of funny, the paradoxical nature of treating depression with a depressant. But uh, yeah, right. uh, basically led to uh, isolation, Okay. Uh, you know, burning bridges, uh, limited social interaction, just drinking by myself in a room, you know, being depressed. You know, that's what the disease wants. It desperately wants to stay alive. So it right. wants you feeling like you're the victim and being sad. And hey, you know, here's a reason to drink, buddy. Right. 
but it, but in a sense, I like this like personification of of your alcoholism almost as this entity that is trying to encourage you to continue feeding it, that it uh, encouraging it to cut off other relationships to to favor itself above all else. Absolutely. Yeah. The personification is a great way to explain it to people who haven't really been through addiction is looking at it, at it as a living entity. Hey, this yeah. thing, just like all other life forms, it desperately wants to survive. Right. And it will give you all kinds, it'll, yeah, it'll play all kinds of tricks on your mind to make sure that it survives. Yeah. And it, and it sounds like it did for a while. It did that. At what point, you know, I almost see this like a person, you know, in your life who may begin acting in a very controlling and possessive manner. Those are features that are pretty universally unattractive, right? If a person in our life starts acting extremely controlling and possessive, most of us have a, a reflex to to try to avoid or, or distance ourselves. At what point did you realize that, you know, alcohol was sort of acting like a, a person in a relationship with you? That maybe you didn't want to be in that relationship. Oh, that's hard to pinpoint an exact moment or time. But I mean, basically, just the whole my mid 20s, just being often non functional. Uh -huh. By this point, no, I knew I didn't want to do this, but I also didn't know how to stop. I didn't know anybody in treatment. Uh, I was completely resistant, 100% prejudiced to the idea of any kind of 12 step programs. Thought it was, oh, this is just some, some, weird cult you know <laughs> like yeah having a feeling of self-reliance and uh, shame in it so thinking oh well i'm not i'm not a freak i can stop this you know i have a powerful mind i can do this this is silly addictions for weak people you know recoveries for weak people i'm not weak okay let's go back to the concept of done sean when were you done i don't know if there's one single moment in time i can pinpoint as just being done okay I would go through periods where enough was enough. I was done in that moment. So later on, I actually did end up going to some 12-step treatment facilities. Uh -huh. I actually learned quite a bit about addiction and you know my particular disease, alcoholism. If you could share with our listeners a little bit about what was going on before you and I met in the DBH clinic. I actually came to a point where I was able to maintain about maybe four or five years of sobriety. I, I wasn't counting. Uh -huh. It was uh, after leaving my last treatment center. And this might sound funny. One of the things that helped to keep me sober was thinking that I don't have another one of these in me, man. Like, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> yeah. I did not have the greatest experience there. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know what? Like, I already know the 12 steps pretty well. I've already read the, the big book cover to cover. Uh -huh. Massive respect for Dr. Bob and Bill W. Absolutely. There, there's there's strokes of brilliance and definitely God in that program. You know, I would say so. I think I think the fingerprints of divinity are all over those twelve steps. But at the same time, making them relevant to you and your very unique way of processing information was maybe lacking. Like I, I love what you just said. I don't know if I have another one of these in me. So it it's really hard to enter treatment. It's a lot of work. It's, and it's not just that it's, it's emotionally taxing. Um, and it sounds like, you know, the whole process of, of drinking and relapsing and, and doing treatment and then kind of limping along for a while and then having another stressor, you were getting kind of burned out. It was wearing you down. Yeah. So I was able to maintain, you know, years of sobriety. I was just focused on health. Once I focused on my health, there were times where, you know, I wasn't, implementing proper coping mechanisms and kind of hit those points where I just felt like crap, just in a spiritual psychological funk and felt like I wanted to drink just to mitigate these feelings. And the physical fitness aspect kind of helped me out there saying, Hey, but look at all the progress you've made, man. What are you going to do? You're just going to damage yourself physically. 
so yeah, I was able to maintain sobriety, uh, wound up in a very serious relationship. You know, we bought it basically married we without the paperwork. You know, we bought a house together. I was raising her daughter as my own. When that ended up not working out, it devastated and crushed me. And once again, not implementing the tools that I already had in my tool bag, you know, they're yeah. right there at my disposal. I ended, this was early 2020, like March, 2020, right around the time COVID hit. I went from, you know, for years being a family man, having a house, uh, stepdaughter, you know, basically wife, the whole thing. Good career. I was a foreman for a company doing heavy industrial systems at the time to within a matter of two weeks, being alone in a room, uh, no relationship, no stepdaughter, no job. And I did not apply the tools that I knew I needed to use. And I just turned to drinking once again. And so the, the bottom fell out, it sounds like, and you lost two really important relationships, you know, the financial stability that you had gained, the housing situation. So, so you came into the clinic. Tell, tell me how that happened. And so this is the beginning of a deep spiritual experience for me. A very close friend of mine from work uh, called me and just said, dude, where you been, man? What's going on? And I told him what was going on. And he said, Hey, well, from when you lost your job, you know, and during COVID, you still have IEHP, right? Well, yeah, I do, actually. He said, why don't you call them? You know, because I, I had voice to him that, dude, I, like, I, I'm, I'm 12, 24 hours away from, you know, possible life-threatening seizure. Like, I could just feel it coming on because I've had so many. I, unfortunately, I know how to gauge accurately. Yeah. I can gauge within 12 hours of when I'm going to have one. Yeah. And uh, he just said, hey, call IEHP. And I'm like, just in, a, in an act of desperation, not expecting anything I did. Uh, but they did refer me to the Department of Behavioral Health in the county of San Bernardino. And I ended up speaking uh, to a woman named Heather, who just who was awesome, by the way. She genuinely cared. She says, hey, well, you know what? I know the most amazing addiction medicine specialist. I don't know if he's going to be able to do anything, uh, mm -hmm. but let's just see. And she even had mentioned that that, uh, that, she, that you, the two of you, had actually recently had a conversation about it's a shame you could, that you can't, uh, that you don't typically treat alcoholics just because of the dangers involved, because they're really need right. to be monitored. Right, right, exactly. So typically, uh, alcohol withdrawal, just for our listeners, is treated in a residential or even a hospital setting, uh, depending on the age and uh, other, you know, medical uh, complexity of what was interesting. And I'll just speak on this briefly. You are a super healthy guy. You're a young, healthy person with a very severe alcohol problem, very severe history of withdrawal complications, and really nothing else physically. And so the judgment was made on, on uh, my part that this is a person who, if we did nothing, right, if we did not act, you were at significant danger of having a, a delirium tremens and severe alcohol withdrawal in the home setting which is extremely dangerous. And then the healthcare system is in that setting reactive, right? Okay, he's having a seizure. We call 911. We bring him in. We give him a little Librium after the fact. My, my concern with that is um, we can see this train coming, right? We knew what was going to happen, right? It just takes a, a little bit of, of thinking to, to kind of get ahead of this, right? And the uh, decision was made to get ahead of this rather than just react to it. And so uh, we brought you into the clinic. 
Yeah, that 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 was nothing short of miraculous. That whole situation. I went from freaking out because uh, you know it's it's a little scary knowing that yeah. your life could be in danger <laughs> from yeah. a seizure that you can feel coming on. Yes. Now you know I recall from from my side that conversation. Tell me about from your side what what that conversation involved, other than you know the basic medical history. Yeah, you started asking me some the normal intake questions. Then you started sure. asking me some very, very interesting questions. Okay. <laughs> Less personal in the sense of, you know, hey, well, you know what, what are your hobbies? But more like you were figuring out how my mind works. And uh, yeah. everything you were asking me was 100% spot on and on point, including things that, you know, are negative attributes. And I think I remember jokingly asking, like, are you a wizard? So there's there are, you know, many different things that drive a person to uh, develop alcoholism, right? From, from genetics, family history, trauma. There's a, there's a certain type of alcoholic that I've found that is, is uh, very special. And in the words of a, of a senior psychiatrist I trained with uh, years ago, they are chronic hypomanic people, right? Yes. These yes. are the people that um, set world records for barefoot water skiing. These are the people that are going 110 miles an hour on a motorcycle because it's Tuesday. Um, and, and they're not, it's not bipolar. It's not suicidal behavior. It's, it comes from a incredible intensity, um, which doesn't necessarily define the personality. It's sort of a, um, if there are five major personality domains, it's sort of the volume knob on which that person experiences that personality. Um, and it's cranked all the way up to 10. All the time. Uh, all the time. And, they, and, and it brings with it a, a, an emotional sensitivity. It usually comes with a certain intelligence. And it comes with a tendency to go to extremes in all things, good and bad. And I guess what I'm saying is I saw, I saw a lot of me. And the person sitting in front of me. Yeah, and it was incredible. You know, um, being in treatment, I have seen uh, psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, uh, you know, psychotherapists, drug and alcohol counselors, uh, you know, the whole onslaught of the psych teams. And yeah. none of them have been even close to being able to figure, like, they weren't even headed towards the right ballpark. They weren't even in the right sport. They're yeah. just asking me all these questions. I'm saying, no, no, I, I see what you're getting at, but no, this is no, no, that doesn't really apply here. Yeah. Uh, and within 20 minutes, you immediately knew exactly who I was, which blew my mind. <laughs> so you had this experience of kind of being seen for who you are. And what did that do for you in terms of your recovery? Well, it definitely gave me a lot of insight into some of these uh, inner demons that I battle. Seeing yeah. that, okay, well, someone who's reading about other people who basically have the same neurological pathways that this is normal, that this is what, these are some of the the trials you're going to face in your life, you know? Uh, so let me, let me back up for one second because the spiritual aspect hits in hard. Oh, absolutely. Right so I've absolutely. always believed in a power greater than myself. I've always believed in God. I used God. to struggle with the concept of a conscious higher power, you know, like uh -huh. a being, a being, so to speak. So the way this whole thing unfolded just did not feel like anything that had happened to me before. And I could, I felt the presence of a higher power working through my buddy, Eddie, who told me to just call IEHP through Heather, who contacted you, then through you, who enlightened me with just so much information about myself. And then also giving me a nudge to, you know, say, Hey, you know, why don't, you know, you could really help people. Why don't you consider doing this? Uh, yeah. 
So basically, it was at a point where I was just preying on all of this. I, you know, I went from being worried I was going to die to sitting in my room, comfortably uh, medicated, just reflecting on everything in the course of maybe six hours. And nothing like that has ever happened. I felt it felt surreal. I was like, did I die? Like, is this <laughs> like what, what is going on here? Uh, you know, it, and I'll just say parenthetically, recovery feels like that. When you are exactly where you're supposed to be, yes. things come together in ways that defy rationality. Right. And that's one aspect of recovery. We mentioned kind of the fingerprints of divinity being on the 12 steps. Absolutely. So basically being at that point, uh, saying, just thinking, hey, well, okay, man, <laughs> you definitely showed me that you're more than just the force from Star Wars or consciousness or the laws <laughs> of physics or whatever, whatever weird way I would try to rationalize my concept of a higher power. And I'd say, hey, so you, you just helped me. Like, what do you want me to do? One of the things I really love in the 12 steps is uh, the third step prayer. And it's, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those that I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And uh, so basically, I really, really prayed that. Not reciting the words, but I'm, I'm just like, hey, so hey, what do you want me to do? Use me as your tool. Build with me. Take me out of myself. Relieve me of the bondage of self uh, right. so that I can do what you want me to do. And, you know, side note. What would God want? He'd probably want you to help people, right? Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. And and that's and that's what you did. I know that that you, you said that beautifully. Uh, but for those of us that are less fluent in 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 that uh, language, in a way, the third step prayer, you you give yourself up to your higher power. And that's what you did. Yeah, one hundred percent. And uh I mean it was basically the first time I ever sincerely prayed because now I felt like there was someone <laughs> sitting by the phone listening to the other end of the line. What's crazy is that the next day, all of a sudden out of nowhere, I was just imbued with the most overwhelming overwhelming feeling I've ever felt in my life. I literally collapsed and cried. I mean, I'm not that much of a crier. Right. For those of us who haven't seen Sean, Sean is a big muscular dude that that builds uh, high-performance cars for a living. He's a, a, a fabricator. He's not – he doesn't look like a crier. Uh, we'll just say that. <laughs> well, but also something that's helped me with a little bit of insight into my psyche, psyche uh -huh. is, is that I am a highly, highly sensitive person, and that actually helps me to deal with things, realizing, oh, you know what? I'm probably just feeling this more than I should right now. But anyway. Okay. So, so, you, so you had this moment. I had the most profound spiritual experience that I could not possibly, I can't effectively put into words to convey the message, but I was just imbued with a sense of duty, a purpose, almost a burden, if you will. I, I, it, it didn't enter my head as a thought like, oh, you know, this would be the best way I could help people. So, you know, I'm going to make this logical deduction and, and come to the conclusion that this is what I should be doing. No, I was just, I was just smacked with this sense of purpose. Like with uh, a resolution I've never felt towards anything. And I'm a weirdo. I'm a crazy person who obsesses <laughs> over things. <laughs> you know, I decide to do something and I do it and I, like with ferocity. And I've, and yet still, I've never felt any kind of sense of resolution like this. And, and it was almost like a done deal is what you're describing. It wasn't this deductive, you know, yeah, that would be a good use of my time sort of thing. This was yeah. like a knowing in your gut. Recovery is all about helping 
other struggling addicts get and stay sober. That's, and that's, that is the divine fingerprint that's in the 12 steps. That's why it's beautiful. And that's why it's a circle, right? Once you got it, you give it away and you keep giving it away. And if you stop giving it away, that's how we lose it. I think in terms of, and, and it meaning as a deep sense of purpose and connectedness uh, to those around us. And a part of that is, is service um, to others. Well, Sean, I want to thank you so much for your time. You have been absolutely fascinating and just a delight to speak with. For information about alcohol and or drug use uh, treatment options, please call us at 1-800-968-2636. Again, that's 1-800-968-2636 for a free and confidential assessment and help in finding the treatment that is right for you. Additional resources are available at sbcounty.gov forward slash dbh. Again, sbcounty.gov forward slash dbh. And until next time, live life resilient and relaxed.